What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, Episode 74, Leviticus Chapter 11. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing this week? Very good. Very good. Well, we get to do clean and unclean animals and foods today. <laughs> yeah, I've got some questions about this one, so I'll be anxious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, it. Uh, this is something that doesn't have a neat explanation, but I'm, I'm going to basically go through the uh, sort of the explanations you'll run into in the academic literature and how they're argued and some of the problems uh, associated with them. And again, my my own sort of response to this is that, hey, if one explanation doesn't work for everything, maybe the, the right thing to do would just be to say, well, maybe it's a little bit of, you know, a couple of these things that, you know, are is behind this. You know, is, is there some rule in Bible interpretation for Leviticus 11 that says we have to have one unifying theory? Why can't uh, the rules emerge out of a couple of ideas? So again, that's the way I'm, I'm going to approach the, uh, the topic. But Leviticus 11, again, I'm not going to read through all of this uh, you know, about the clean and the unclean and the, the cloven hooves and the bald locusts and all well, this kind well, of Mike, stuff. Well, Mike, I've got one last thing. As You're long as you make these ideas are kosher. Yeah, there you go. I just had to get that in there. <laughs> you just had to do that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, we're. <laughs> it sort of is what it is. I'm not going to read through the the whole thing, uh, but I'll I'll read through you know some parts of it here to get us started. But just generally speaking, here the the food rules and the clean and unclean animal rules here in Leviticus uh, 11 and in other passages like Deuteronomy 14, you get a restatement of some of this. They're concerned with food derived typically from animals, that is flesh or meat. Uh, and it's not really concerned with other food that isn't meat. Like, let's just take leaven. Okay, so that the whole issue of leaven is not addressed in Leviticus 11. It's, it's flesh and meat, you know, the, the consumption of different animals. It's also not concerned with food made unclean by contact with something else unclean. So the focus here in this chapter are animals that are clean or unclean, fit for consumption or, or allowed for consumption or not. Now, Leviticus 11 is the most thorough uh, treatment of this in the Old Testament. As I mentioned before, you get a little bit of this in Deuteronomy 14. It's more concise there, uh, not as not as lengthy and detailed as this one. But so we'll, we, we may mention Deuteronomy a little bit, but we're, we're going to try to focus here on uh, Leviticus 11. So Let's just, you know, read a few few lines, you know, here and there just so people get the feel for it. Leviticus 11 opens this way. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, speak to the people of Israel, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof 
Okay, whatever parts the hoof, the, the, the hoof is you know cloven or sectioned, I guess we could say, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Among the Hebrews, they're sort of the beasts of the field, that kind of thing you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. Okay, so there's exceptions here. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, you'll notice in that section, that's the first eight verses, that the pig isn't viewed any more negatively than the other ones. Okay, so we, you know, we, you know, the, this whole thing with pork has somehow become more pronounced to in, in the in the popular conception of Jews and Judaism. I don't really know why. Uh, there, there might be, you know, a, a clue in, in terms of of antiquity why this was the case. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but e- even that again is going to have problems, as we'll see. But the news flash here to, to start with is that pork is not specifically singled out as more abominable than these other things that are forbidden. It's the pigs are right in there with the list of these animals that, you know, both conditions have to be met, cloven-footed and chew the cud. So again, it has it's there's no special, you know, ab- abhorrency right there in in that section. So then it goes on to these you may eat that are in the waters, okay? Whatever in the waters has fins and scales, whether in the seas of the rivers you may eat, but anything in the seas of the rivers that does not have fins and scales or the swar- of the swarming creatures in the waters or the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. So this is how the whole chapter goes through. I think I think most people are who have attempted to read Leviticus have run into this, or maybe culturally, again, just the familiarity with Judaism, either through friends or TV or, you know, discussions you may have had, you, you run into this on a more popular level. So this this is the chapter, though, that all of this stuff sort of emerges from. By way of general observation, let's just make a few observations here. This chapter is addressed to all Israelites, and the laws in here are applicable at all times. In other words, you're not going to have an exception made of an exception at some point under some you know condition. And when it comes to land animals, you have those that may be eaten are distinguished by three criteria. They have hooves, the hooves are cloven in two, and they chew the cud. So this broadly de- actually describes sort of a zoological suborder. These are what, what uh, biologists would, and zoologists would call the ruminants. Again, which includes, among others, all the animals bred for food by Israelites, cattle, sheep, goats. Again, they're all ruminants. Now, Deuteronomy 14.5 lists uh, these along with, you know, these domesticated ruminants along with some wild species that are also ruminants and also acceptable, deer and the gazelle. But other large animals, again, that don't meet these criteria are forbidden. And specifically, you have certain animals, of course, including the pig, but not exclusive to the pig, which are said to either chew the cud or have cloven hooves, but not both. So you you need all of the conditions. Now, one note here, the expression chew the cud implies, again, this is just, this is a good example of, again, that scripture is not doing science, that the the, the quote unquote science in it is based upon the, the language of experience, you know, phenomenological language. The expression to chew the cud implies that these animals have multiple stomachs, which the ruminants would, but that's actually inaccurate when it comes to the rock badger and the hare or the rabbit. 
who are which are forbidden. They're not true ruminants. So again, this would be a scientifically incorrect statement if the point was science. If the point was actually to to observe the ruminant class and determine that class by multiple stomachs, and because that's technically what chewing the cud has to have. Again, but this is not a scientific statement. It, it's based upon the appearance. And in this case, with the rock badger and the hare, they give the appearance of chewing their food for a long time, like a ruminant would, but they actually don't. Uh, but they're still you know, unclean anyway, even though they're classified like ruminants are. They're still unclean because they lack a cloven hoof. But again, it's just a, another example of, of non-scientific, scientifically imprecise language that in my mind, I, that's fine because again, we, we let we let Scripture be what it is. We let the Bible be what it is. This this sort of description is very clearly based on visual observation and not something you know more scientific. When it gets to creatures of the water, those that are permitted have fins and scales. Now that covers most, but not all, fish, and it excludes mollusks and crustaceans. In other words, shellfish. So those would be unacceptable. When it comes to creatures of the air, birds or larger flying creatures like bats uh, would be included here, and flying insects. Uh, They're they're treated separately. There's no criteria uh, actually given for birds, uh, which ones are clean and unclean. There's only a list of the ones that you shouldn't eat. And typically, the, the ones that are eliminated are carrion eaters. In other words, they eat dead flesh. So... Uh, there's a little bit of imprecision here broadly because there's no criteria. Some of the terminology that's used for the birds that are that are forbidden, scholars aren't quite sure, you know, which specific species today, you know, in today's parlance would be in view. So there's a little bit of ambiguity, but generally speaking, what they're, they're, they're sort of eliminated because they, they tend to eat dead flesh. Uh, that, that makes them off limits. Now, all birds not in this list... In other words, if, if when you look at Leviticus 11 and you read the, the list of forbidden birds, even though you don't have criteria for why they're forbidden, other than it's, it seems like they're, they're carrion eaters. When you look at that list, if you find, if you're looking for a bird that isn't in the list, most scholars would say that you can presume that that bird was acceptable to eat. Uh, in other words, they, they take the list as being the, I don't want to say sac- sacrosanct, that's the wrong word, but they, they take the list as definitive uh, as to what you couldn't eat. Now, all flying insects, interestingly enough, are prohibited in Deuteronomy. Leviticus, though, uses a criterion, though. Leviticus uses the criterion of the possession of hind legs for hopping to permit four kinds of locust, which, again, we in our scientific biology can't quite identify based on the Hebrew terminology. In other words, specifically which ones are in view here. But Leviticus and Deuteronomy have have a bit of a difference here. Leviticus is, is more precise in its language, allowing for certain incense, insects that can fly uh, to be eaten, and specifically they have to have hind legs for hopping. Again, and that, that uh, puts the locust in that category. Then you have swarming things of the ground. Again, in the way the ESV renders this, this language, uh, small animals, this would be that run or crawl close to the ground, things like rodents or lizards, and of course, insects that aren't in the flying variety, that kind of thing. Those are the swarming things of the ground. Between them, again, rodents, lizards, and, and the insects, All the, these categories sort of exhaust all animal life in this subgroup. And then also when you combine this subgroup with the other subgroups, the, the, the implication is that these are the animals, the living things known to the people of Israel 
And the list is sort of intended to be comprehensive as much as is possible, again, given their experience, their life experience, their environment, their geography, whatnot. Uh, All swarming creatures, incidentally, going back to that point, are forbidden uh, without exception. So rodents, lizards, and the crawling insects, that sort of thing. Now, again, in the language of appearance, again, judging it by geography and the, and the experience of, of the Israelites, the, the animals they would have run into or would have known, you know, called that part of the world home, the list is pretty exhaustive and, and frankly intended to be exhaustive. So how do we explain this? I mean, you're, you, you get a lot of explanations. If, if people are interested in real, real detail here, I think uh, one of the scholars known uh, in this area is, is, is named W.J. Houston. He has a, a, a pretty, pretty thorough article in the Dictionary of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch volume, but he also has a monograph, a whole book uh, specifically on this kind of thing. And so I've, I've, in places here, I've used him as a, as a touch point you know, for what, what he's saying, but I'll, you know, I'll depart here and there as well. But if you're really into this, I'd recommend Houston's article to get you started. And then his, of course, his whole book uh, on the subject. And of course, he's not the only one that writes on this, but it's, it's pretty accessible. Now, textually, let, let's, let's talk about some explanations. On the level of the text, you're, we're actually given an explanation. Okay. These prohibitions are about, quote, the holiness of the people of Israel. Okay. That they are about being distinguished from and distinct from the other you know nations around them okay they are down you get you go down all the way to to the end of leviticus 11 it says in verse 43 you shall not make yourselves detestable okay with any swarming thing that swarms you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them for verse 44 for i am the lord your god consecrate yourselves again that's the lemma for for holiness Okay, Kadash, make yourself holy, sanctify yourselves, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Verse 47, I'll have to read verse 46. We'll just read it in context here. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms in the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So you get to the end of the chapter, and it's about being set apart. It's about being sanctified or consecrated. Again, the, if you think back in Leviticus, the, the consecration talk, the sanctification talk, the, 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 the holiness talk, and we've had in previous episodes, is about the, the easiest place to see it is in sacred space. There are things that are sanctified because they are only to be used in the service for Yahweh by the priests. And there's only certain people that can do that. They are sanctified. They are set apart, again, for that duty. And there's only certain places where these things happen. Sacred space. The space has to be, quote, sanctified. The the, the verbiage is always the same, whether it's a person, an object, or a place. And here you get, with reference to the Israelites collectively, that you observe these clean and unclean laws about food. Why? To make yourself sanctified set apart for Yahweh, marked as people of Yahweh, as opposed to people of other gods, people of other nations. So that, that's the textual rationale. That, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty clear. What isn't clear is how our holiness, how is this sanctified idea and purity connected with diet? I mean, why food? What's the rationale here? Now, according to Deuteronomy 14, again, the, the, the parallel passage, the more consor- concise version of this listing, that verse adds an interesting detail. It says, you shall not 
eat any abomination. So in other words, Yahweh's people are not to eat things that were considered abominable, things that were considered disgusting. But of course, the problem with that is that implies some pre-existing sense of what is disgusting, you know, specifically to eat. So now I want you to hang on to this idea because here's the point with this, and I'm going to return to this at the end when we go through all these different theories. Part, at least part of the rationale for how food, how diet is connected with being set apart has to do with culture. It has to do with a people's opinion collectively in Semitic culture that they already have. In other words, their their opinion about what is abhorrent to eat is not given to them by God. Not you know, I mean, you, you don't you don't get some sort of mental zap that oh, yesterday I used to like bacon and today I hate it. Today I think it's abominable. You know, no, there there are parts of this that are already within, again, the cultural context of what people think is disgusting to eat. So that's at least part of the rationale. Uh, they're, they're, it's a cultural thing. It's a, it's a Semitic thing. It's a, it's a second millennium BC, you know, Semitic, you know, Eastern Mediterranean kind of thing. It's part of their world, part of their worldview, part of their frame of reference. So that's at least part of the explanation. But let's go through, uh, again, some of the, the approaches to answering this question. How is sanctification, how is this holiness thing connected to diet? Uh, these are theories that you're bound to run into if you do any serious reading on the subject. So the first one we should sort of get out of the way right away, that is probably in the mind of many listeners, is what we'll call the hygienic theory. Now, again, this is the idea that, well, the things that are prohibited here are, are prohibited because of some hygienic reason. Uh, either the food that, that is, is pointed out is not good for you, it'll make you sick, it carries parasites, or something like that, or you, it doesn't cook well. In other words, there's this hygienic slash medical uh, rationale. And, and I've heard this a lot, you know, again, sort of assuming that, you know, God is is, you know, he's, he's the, the, the great nutritionist in the sky or the great biologist in the sky. He's, he's the great microbiologist in the sky. And of course, God knows all these things, but the, the, the whole point of it and, the, and why I'm putting, that, putting it that way is that God is sort of dispensing, without even the Israelites knowing it, dispensing advanced medical knowledge, you know, that, that they alone had. And, and that, that's what part of what made them distinct. And this is why they did it. And also, it's used as to argue this, that's also why we shouldn't eat these things. Because there's this I- intrinsic hygienic point to all of it. Now, this notion goes back at least to Maimonides, a famous Jewish thinker, philosopher, writer in the 12th century AD. I mean, he mentions this, so it's not a new idea. It's not a. It's not an idea that popped up just with modern knowledge of germs and micro, you know, microbial life and all that kind of thing. It's older than that. Again, in the modern form, people like to point to the dangers of inadequate inadequately cooking pork and shellfish and how this can harm you. And the theory suffers from from some some sort of obvious inconsistencies and shortcomings. The theory doesn't really make medical or hygienic sense because all animal species can carry parasites that make their flesh dangerous when not properly cooked. Every one of them. Okay. An egg, all right, can harm you if it's not properly cooked. 
it's not consistent to, to just say that these specific species, these specific animals have some sort of hygienic risk that God knew about and was magically transmitting this knowledge to the ancient Israelites. And boy, weren't they advanced without even knowing it. And we should, we should obey these laws because of the same thing. Again, it's not consistent because every flesh, everything you could eat that's an animal species can carry parasites that would be dangerous if you don't cook it properly. Every one of them. The other problem is there's really no notion in the Old Testament of any sort of public health program or public health sort of consciousness in in other areas. You know, you could you could look at some other things that make you sick. Is there is there a rule, you know, about not just washing your hands before you eat? Okay, is is there a law, you know, about that and 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 using a certain thing to make sure that the microbes are off your hands. Water's not just adequate. Doctors tell us this today. Microbiologists tell us this today. Water alone is not adequate. You need a cleansing agent that kills germs. Well, then, you know, why don't we why don't we read that kind of stuff in the Old Testament about washing not being adequate and having something more quote unquote secretly scientific that actually takes care of that problem? You know, we, we, we just, you just don't have things like that, uh, drinking out of the same cup. Okay, they certainly do that because, hey, we're, we're out here living in the desert. We don't have, you know, a, I'm trying to remember what, if, if my wife was here, she'd remember what the furniture term is for this. You know, basically the big cabinet that has lots of settings and dishes and cups in them. You don't have that. Okay, they're drinking out of the same bucket. They're drinking out of the same cup. Uh, they're, they're, they're not, Using, they're not washing utensils in between every use. You know, in other words, there's no Old Testament laws about this. There's no public health systematic program in the Old Testament. There just isn't. And so, if this is the point, that is really odd that those other things that very obviously that we're sensitive to today, you know, to 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 not transmit germs and bacteria, we would think that that would be in there if that was the point. But it's not. So I, I'm not real enthusiastic in any regard about the hygienic theory. Move on to another one. The, the, there's what scholars would call the cultic theory or the cult polemic theory. And this is the notion that the species that were forbidden from consumption were those that were prominent uh, in pagan cults. In other words, prominent in terms of sacrifice. Uh, this, this can be found also really, really, you know, back in antiquity that some of the church fathers like Origen uh, brought this up uh, as, as, again, sort of an explanation. But in reality, again, the most common animals sacrificed in pagan religions, like Canaanite religion, Egyptian religion, were exactly the same as the ones sacrificed by Israelites. Again, goats, cattle, sheep, they're the same ones that, that are in the other systems. Now, this is where you might get an exception with pigs, though. It is probable okay, that pigs were sacrificed in certain cultures. Again, it, it, you know, probable might even be a strong word, but let, let's just say it, this is certainly on the table because of the archaeological record. It's somewhat likely that pigs were sacrificed in certain rituals carried out in honor of underworld deities. Okay, in other cultures that would have been particularly forbidden or icky, you know, repugnant to followers of Yahweh. Okay, that, that, that is a possibility. And it's not so much the case with other unclean species. So again, you can't say that all of the unclean species are unclean because pagans offered them. You know, they're not offering mice, you know, the rodents. They're not offering fish that don't have scales, you know. It, but, but the pig, again, seems to be at issue, again, because of the archaeological record. You will find references to sacrificing pigs 
in ancient Near Eastern literature, uh, you know, in, in other ritual acts of other religions, whereas, of course, in Israel you don't find that. So there, there might be something to this. Pig bones, again, have been found in pits, uh, in, in pre-Israelite sites in Canaan. Uh, again, before the Israelites got there, that again, maybe the Canaanites offered pigs because uh, apparently they were just offered and not eaten or, you know, I mean, there there is some archaeological testimony to pigs being ritually slain in this part of the world. Uh, so that might, again, be a rationale for, for them, but it certainly doesn't work with the whole list of the forbidden species that you just can't make work. Uh, and even even with that, you can't say that there's any direct evidence that pig sacrifices occurred with any regularity in other religions, in ancient Near Eastern religions. They do occur. There are scant references to it, but they weren't apparently, as far as the textual record we have uh, from other these other cultures and their rituals, and there are lots of those texts. You can't look at that material and say this was a routine offering. A pig was a routine offering because it wasn't. It was very occasional. But at least it, it does happen. Now, you know, I've I've read here, and again, this is actually from Houston's book, not his article. But he talks about uh, a, an archaeological site in southeast Spain that was uh, affiliated with Punic and Phoenician people. Again, which of course are you know the northern part of the of the coast, or the, the Holy Land, uh, the Phoenicians. Uh, there there've been there was a crematorium discovered there, and on the sides of the crematorium, which is you know in, in a tower, there are pictures that maybe depict a pig. It's sort of a two-headed monster uh, sitting in, you know, on, on a, he's seated on a chair in front of a table, uh, receiving a child in a bowl at his right hand. Now, the, again, Phoenicians, and the, the Phoenician Punic literature is familiar with child sacrifice. Okay, so you've, you've got this child in a bowl. While the person uh, in the picture, there's another person at the table prepares to slaughter a second child. But what's significant is that at the monsters or the, 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 the creature's left hand is a pig lying on its back. So the, the, the assumption is, does that equate pig sacrifice with child sacrifice? Because we know from Phoenician Punic material, uh, Carthage especially, you know, places like that, that, that children were sacrificed. So here we have this picture and there's a pig in the picture that looks like it's dead. So does that imply that, that the pig was used by the Phoenicians, for instance, in a ritual way? Well, you know, it, it, it might. You, you could certainly build an argument uh, on that. But again, the question is, were they the only ones? Did they do it with mice? Did they do it with fish that were unclean? Did they do it with, you know, other, you know, hares and, you know, other ruminants that weren't really ruminants? I mean, you can't, you just can't make that argument. You can't say that all of the prohibited animals are prohibited because they're part of some cult, you know, non-Yahweh cult. But the pig, again, appears to have that association. So, where do you go with that? Well, I think that's about really all you can say. And and the cultic, cult polemic view doesn't really work, even though with pigs, there there might be something that something going on there. That's about the best you can say. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, though, and we'll come back to this point, too, that since this is the case, since pigs were seldom sacrificed and these other you know, again, unclean animals, you can't find them being sacrificed in the pagan cultures and, of course, also the Israelite culture. Is there a pattern there? In other words, is the pig and these other foods, these other animals, are they not fit for the gods? And I'm going to come back to this point because we might be dealing with analogy. What's not fit for the gods, we shouldn't eat either. 
Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that that uh, that idea. We want to go on to a third theory here. We'll call this one the anomaly theory. And this is the idea, and, and again, this is largely based on the work of an anthropologist named Mary Douglas. You will see Mary Douglas quoted all the time when it comes to Leviticus. Now, that what you need to realize, though, is that Mary Douglas changed her position uh, on, on certain aspects that really you know, if, if you're dealing with a commentary in Leviticus that quotes Mary Douglas and it's written, you know, it's not written in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I'm not sure she's alive still. She may be. Uh, but chances are your information is out of date and Douglas herself would actually disagree with something she wrote earlier. Uh, on my blog, I, I made reference to a book by Jonathan Clowens on impurity purity and impurity. And and he deals extensively with Douglas in that book. And he goes through her, sort of the evolution of her thinking, the evolution of her views on purity and impurity. And he does a good job of saying and showing, you know, well, here, here's what she used to think. Here's what she thinks now and that kind of thing. But that's a more recent book. A lot of the commentaries that pastors are going to use on Leviticus are much earlier. And they would, if they quote Douglas and they're, they're bound to, the information might be out of date and something that she'd actually deny now. But her, her general theory was about anomalies. You know, she, and I'm going to quote here from Houston to explain her view. Quote, What accounts for the way in which permitted and forbidden animals are distinguished? All classification gives rise to anomalies. And that, that's a problem because no matter what your classification scheme is, there's going to be some outlier somewhere. In Douglas's earlier thought, the anomalies are the key to understanding the Pentateuchal system. Again, that was, that was her initial view. For each of the three spheres of life, land, water, and air, land animals, water animals, air animals, the system propounds a model that expresses the mode of life, the mode, the movement of the living thing proper to that sphere. So in other words, land animals move a certain way, water animals move a certain way, air animals move a certain way. While the criteria of cleanness in beasts are derived from the animals that the Israelites actually kept for food and sacrifice. So you've got the way an animal moves, the way it transports itself. And again, you have this, this issue of, you know, what was sort of normally at hand in food and sacrifice. So Houston, again, talking about Douglas continues, he says, animals that fail to conform to the model are rejected. And the most emphatic rejection applies to the species that threaten the classification system by overlapping its boundaries. He gives an example, the four animals of Leviticus 4, Leviticus 11, 4 through 8, it's where you get the rock badger, okay, the hare, and all that stuff. Defy the classification, you know, in, in some way. Again, they, they overlap the boundary because they're, they're good in one way and they're bad in another. So those, they're rejected because you have to have the whole system intact. He says, or Douglas would say that, that animals defy the classification altogether. Another, his example here is the swarming creatures that are found in each sphere, but in no way conform to its mode of life. Again, that, that's a little sort of vague and odd. But basically what Douglas was saying is, look, in each sphere of, of, of being, land, water, and air, most animals propel themselves a certain way, have the same set of characteristics. But yet there are animals in each of those spheres that, that lack something or that don't quite do something the way most of the other ones do. They are outliers. They are misfits. Okay, if I could use that term. They don't fit completely in their category. And so Douglas is reasoning that there's something about the unclean animals that to the Israelites made them misfits in whatever group 
they they belong to and this is this is how she was arguing about how certain animals were excluded houston continues he says however as douglas later came to recognize there is nothing to indicate any special degree of abhorrence for the groups she had singled out as anomalous or for the forbidden animals in general. Moreover, to find the source of the concept of unclean or unacceptable animals in the system of classification itself is circular reasoning. There is, for example, no reason why water creatures should have scales except that others are defined as unacceptable. But that's just what we're trying to explain, he says. Wherever classifying criteria are given in the law, they serve to identify animals already regarded as acceptable or not. This is shown by the case of the birds, where the task of finding criteria is left to the rabbinic period. I mean, there, there is, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, there is no criteria. There are no criteria for, for the birds. They just give a list. So there must have been some sense, and we actually get them in the list, of why certain birds were unclean, even though we're never told why in Leviticus 11. So Houston's point is that it, it's nice to try to categorize the unclean ones as anomalous in some way. But especially when you get to the birds, you're not told what that way is. And that tells you, that proves that there's some sort of underlying cultural thing going on here uh, that for whatever reason, because the anomaly with those birds is not really observable. Maybe, you know, at least some of them for sure are carrion eaters. Maybe that was the logic. But guess what? We could say that, oh, they were, these birds are excluded because they ate dead flesh. You know what? You know, it, wouldn't it be nice if that was specifically you know, spelled out, you know, in, in all cases. Again, it, it, wouldn't it be nice if that was just a little clear? Well, yeah, that would be nice, but it's not. So again, what, what he's saying is that there, there's something else going on here other than, you know, the way a, an animal propels itself or, or that it's a misfit in some way against all the other ones. There's something cultural here as well. Let's go to a, another view, and this will be the, the one I can I conclude with, and then I'll sort of Give my my spin on this, my take on the on the whole thing. Let's call the call this one the analogy approach. So again, another you know attempted explanation for what the rationale is. Now, some scholars have suggested that the clean beasts in Israel were based on the paradigm of sacrificial animals. In other words, the table, a person's table, the average Israelite's table, is in some way being viewed as parallel to the Lord's altar. In other words, if the animal could be sacrificed put on God's table, it could also be eaten on your table. So there's an analogy going on there. And this, you know, again, can dovetail with at least the pig thing. There's there's scant evidence of pigs being sacrificed. But again, you know, where this analogy sort of works with the pig, well, the pigs are never sacrificed in the Levitical system. Therefore, that's why pigs aren't to be eaten by, by normal people. You know, whatever's good for God is good for us. Well, that works with the pig in theory. Again, because other nations occasionally sacrifice pigs, so you know, maybe there's something going on there. But again, you don't have that said of the other forbidden species in, in other texts. In, in ancient Near Eastern cultures in Israel, okay, they didn't sacrifice pigs. I got it. Or at least it's very rare in, in ancient Near Eastern cultures. But while ancient Near Eastern people did eat animals not sacrificed to their deities, I mean, they did eat pigs. Egyptians ate pigs. Canaanites ate pigs, so the, the, the analogy breaks down there. You, but you could say, well, maybe the Israelites were just more consistent. 
you know, maybe, maybe this is this is why they're doing what they're doing. So it's true that ancient Near Eastern religions didn't really sacrifice pigs, but they did eat them. But maybe they shouldn't have, because maybe that the whole idea is what's good for the deity is good for us. So the Israelites were just more consistent here. We don't sacrifice pigs, so we're not going to eat pigs either. Again, to make that argument coherent, you would, again, to show that Israel alone is consistent and the other ancient peoples are not in their thinking, you'd have to have texts that, that, that you know, indicate that maybe some of these other unclean animals were occasionally offered. But, but again, you, you don't. There's an absence of data there. So who knows? Again, if the table analogy is the point, why not just say that? Wouldn't that be nice if there was just a verse that says, hey, here, here's why thou shalt not eat these animals. Here's why thou shalt consider them unclean, because the Lord doesn't want to eat them in sacrifices, because the Lord doesn't want them sacrificed. Well, then you'd have it. Then you, then this analogy, the, the analogy approach would make sense. Why not just say that? But of course, the text doesn't say that. And again, you also have a little bit of circular reasoning here. If the table analogy seems circular, it, it kind of is, it, it sounds that way because it is. Can't the reverse be argued? In other words, if a food was unclean for people, then it shouldn't be served to God, as opposed to saying, well, it's not fit for God, so it's not fit for us. Well, why not reverse it? Hey, if it's not fit for us, then it can't be fit for God. Uh, you know, flip it, turn it on its head. It's a chicken or egg problem, because if it, if it, if it originated with people, what we don't eat, you know, we're not going to sacrifice. And then we're just going to write this Leviticus 11 thing that makes it sound like God's giving us this rule. But really the rule is because we don't eat this stuff. Again, you, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, on, on that level. And again, there, there are inconsistencies even in the Israelite system. You could say, well, the Israelites are the most consistent because of the pig. You know, they don't eat the pig and they don't sacrifice the pig. So they win on consistency. Actually, they don't. Israelites ate certain fish, but you don't see fish sacrificed to the Lord. You know, even acceptable fish aren't sacrificed to the Lord. So it's really not consistent. Again, there's really not a complete analogy here. And then you have the camel. The camel was a domesticated ruminant, but it was eliminated because it didn't, you know, divide the, the hoof. You know, I mean, you, you just have, no matter what theory you have, all of the data, all of the prohibitions and exceptions cannot really be explained by one approach. And that's, that's the problem I'm getting at here. So if you're asking me, what, what do you think is the rationale here? I would say that sometimes analogy can explain certain things, but I think you also have cultural abhorrence that has to be part of why Leviticus 11 says what it says. So I, I think, I think one approach is insufficient. And so the, the coherent thing to do there is say, is ask the question, well, why do we have to have just one approach that explains everything? Maybe a couple of different approaches, a couple of these ideas, maybe they were all in operation at different points and were just not told clearly. So I think that, that the food laws are part cultural conditioning. There's a sense already among the Israelite people because of, again, who they are, where they live, the time they live, and all that kind of stuff. There's already a, a cultural sense of certain things being abhorrent to eat, and they, by definition, are not going to be clean. They're not going to be acceptable. But you also have certain animals that are on the list because they will make you distinct from the other peoples, and they are not, again, fit for sacrifice to the Lord. So I think it's a combination of, of, of several of these things. And if you're willing, again, to just think outside 
one of these boxes. If you're willing to say, well, they all, you know, have have some things going for them. So let's try to be come up with a comprehensive way to look at this and, and, and say there's actually more than one explanation, but maybe two or three contribute to this. I just think you're on better ground. And so that that's how I approach the, the the whole issue, the whole problem. In terms of, you know, wrapping up, you know, for, well, what does this mean for us today? I think it's very clear that this is a, a cultural setting. This is Israelite. This is Semitic culture. This is the ancient Near East, the ancient Eastern Mediterranean. Okay, that kind of thing, part, at least part of Leviticus 11, needs that culture to make sense. It's, it's also a ritual setting. Again, that takes us into the, into the whole theocratic mentality, the theocratic rationale. And since we aren't living in ancient Semitic culture and we no longer have a theocracy, uh, my view is that these food laws are not meant for us today. That you, they, they are culturally isolated and they are theologically isolated because of their attachment to the 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 cult of Yahweh, the rituals of Yahweh. But, you know, and again, for those who missed earlier episodes, cult is an academic way of referring to the sacrificial system, to the ritual system. So, because it has to do with with the, the tabernacle and the temple and all that sort of thing, we don't have that again by design, by divine design. Uh, I don't think that there's an argument to be made that we should be following the food laws. And you've already known or already heard uh, my opinion of the hygienic argument. I don't think it's coherent. And even if that was the point, stick that thing in a microwave and it kills the germ. You know, you could you could get around it if that was the point. But I don't think from the get-go that's the point because every animal, even the good ones, even the ones that were clean, can have the same problem bacteria and so on and so forth and disease and, and whatnot. So I don't think that's that's coherent at all. So I think, again, this is a good example of, look, why would we want to revert in our theology, in our theological way of life, you know, the, the way we live our lives driven by things we believe. That's what I mean, the way our theology, you know, propels our life. Why would we want to go back to a system that very clearly in the book of Acts, we were liberated from. And again, liberated might be the wrong word. It might be a harsh word. It it makes it sound bad. And I don't mean to convey that thought because the Old Testament system wasn't bad. But in the sense of now we're not bound to geography, to ethnicity, to culture. The gospel and our position as being the temple, we are the temple. These things, those truths transcend all these other things the binding culture, okay, the ritual setting. Where we're at today transcends all that. So rather than have this romanticized notion of, oh, I wish we could do Jewish things and, you know, with the food laws. Again, if you want to do that, that's your your privilege, but don't attach theology to it that contradicts clear New Testament theology. In other words, treat it as a preference. It might be a good preference. You know, it's fine if it's a preference, but let people know that this is a preference for you. It's not a theological statement, and you're not going to try to bend the New Testament to conform to your preference. And I think that's a simple sort of rule of thumb. If you want to follow the food laws, you know, have at it. Go ahead. But again, theologically, you know, do not bend the New Testament to your will, to your preference. Okay, Mike. Well, I think you've answered most of my questions that I had, so that's good. Um, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. And speaking of that, you know, uh, 
and, and, well, you and, got you got two two good zingers. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's that's my role. That's the role that I play yeah. here on the show. Okay. Uh, in verse thirty-five, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. Talking about the carcasses of of mice or you know whatnot that touches it, they have to actually be broken. So, do modern day Jews still live by this? I mean, if if they find a carcass under their stove, I mean, do they literally throw it out? You know, not not. Not to my knowledge, um, you know. I this would actually make interesting, kind of interesting reading. I I've never heard uh, of an example, uh, sort of a literalistic application of that verse in that situation in a modern setting. You know, there there may be there, there's probably some. Again, this is just a guess, but there's probably some sort of procedure to cleanse. You know, both literally and and ritually, religiously clean and cleanse the area so that the thing can be used again. But I've, I've never heard of anybody taking it that, that far. Again, you've answered most of my questions there at the end that I had about, uh, you know, it's important to God, obviously, these food rules. So how should us Christians, even though, you know, you said a lib- uh, liberated, and that's probably not the right word, but yeah. it, we, we've been freed from these rules in the New Testament, but, it, you know, it's obviously important to God in some way or fashion. So as a Christian, what is important and isn't in God's yeah what view. what 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 makes a Christian distinctive now you know in any given modern culture you know there's going to be a variety to that but I think I think the 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 one thing that is clear is that there needs to be some distinctiveness in other words if 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 there's no distinctiveness at all then I think we sort of lose the principle because that's really ultimately what these things are about you know you that you will be set apart you know from the the other nations that again people on the outside, people who encounter us will know that we are not followers. You know, we're not part of this culture. We don't follow that God because of these certain things that we do. Uh, And I think that principle is something that we can live out today. And even though, even while we're, we're, it's nice and it might be convenient or whatever, you know, whatever word you want to put to it, say, oh, we don't have to do this thing over here. Well, that still leaves the question on the table. Well, what are you doing so that people will know that you follow Christ. You know, so I think I think distinctiveness is still very broadly a principle that is important for the Christian today and that, you know, does have its hooks back into passages like Leviticus 11. All right, Mike, we'll switch in gears here. Mike, your supernatural release is coming up. Oh yeah. Book, yep. and, and actually I just checked on Amazon and it says it's in stock. So, if you're listening to this, I'd run to Amazon real quick. Does it have the note about a November 10 release? Because that it does. I know that was up there. Okay, it does. All right. Yeah. Well, if it's in stock, you know, you'll you'll get it pretty quickly then. But the you know the date is still up there, and that's the one I've been told internally. It's still November 10th. But hey, try it out. Go yeah. get it. Well, uh, also want to say thank you for those who've donated, whether via mm-hmm. PayPal or always through Patreon. We appreciate yeah. your support; it means a lot. And next week, Mike, continuing on with Leviticus. Yeah, I think that the the, the passage next time. I think we're doing two because like twelve, yeah, twelve through fourteen, because twelve is really tiny, and these are all thematically related. So we should be able to get through Leviticus fourteen next time. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.